This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Rick Jacobs, who leads the Union for Reform Judaism. The URJ has nearly 850 congregations, reaching 1.5 million people, and is, among other things, the world's largest aggregator of rabbis' husbands. Rabbi Jacobs graduated from HUC in 1982, exactly 25 years ahead of the woman who made me the rabbi's husband. He has since served at the Brooklyn Heights Synagogue before going to Westchester Reform Synagogue, where he served for 20 years and, among other things, completed one of the first green sanctuaries. He has been involved in a variety of global social justice issues from Haiti to Darfur. And Rabbi Jacobs is well known for many things, but he is little known until perhaps now for quietly going to synagogues of different denominations, thus showing his deep personal commitment to Jewish community and peoplehood and setting an example that has inspired rabbis, reform, conservative, orthodox, and other. Rabbi Jacobs, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be with you. It's really an honor. And so your chosen passage is from Isaiah, Isaiah 58. So please tell us um, what happens in Isaiah 58, 1 through 8, and why it's uh, significant to you. First of all, we have to know that this passage is read on Yom Kippur morning, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. And it wasn't selected to be read by a reform rabbi or by a social justice warrior. It was selected in the Babylonian Talmud in Tractate Megillah, page 31a, where it says this is the section that everybody reads. And the section is very agitational. Why? Because it's the morning when we're fasting. We're not eating. Our stomachs are growling. We're in synagogue. And what's the message of Isaiah 58? The message of Isaiah 58 is, you think you're fasting from food? Oh, no. Oh, that's not the passage. The passage says, I need you to fast from injustice. I need you to fast from hoarding your food. You have to work to free the oppressed and to feed the hungry and let the enslaved go free. So it literally is a counterbalance to the most intense ritual moment in the Jewish calendar and says, it's not all about ritual. In fact, if it's only about the ritual and it doesn't change the way you behave and act, then it has no meaning whatsoever. To do that on Yom Kippur morning is unbelievably powerful, and it's a corrective to a Judaism that would be only obsessed with ritual details, but it also, I'm gonna, this is agitational for the social justice warriors, it's not suggesting that ritual doesn't matter. It's not suggesting that study doesn't matter. What it's suggesting is those must be the foundation that move us to live a more ethically rigorous, disciplined, impactful life. And that's why I chose this passage, and that's why I'm literally in love with this passage. That is incredible. I had no idea. This is what we read on Yom Kippur morning. So at our most intense ritual, we read a passage that challenges the conventional notion of ritual. Exactly right. And, you know, some people think that social justice was invented by, you know, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel during the uh, post-World War II era. And it turns out that commitment to social justice, to righting the wrongs of society, 
are fundamental to what it means to be a person of Jewish commitment and faith. And in some ways, this text really is the counterbalance to a tendency, I think, within religious practice in general, not just Jewish practice, but to say it's all about what happens inside the sanctuary. It's all what we do with the prayer book in our hand. And I'm the first one to say those are the most powerful grounding and fuel for the kind of lives that we're all trying to live. But if it only goes to that kind of intensity, if I only worry about what I eat and not what I say, if I only worry about the three times a day that I'm praying or the passages that I must study, and I'm not out there every day living differently and agitating, not just in my personal circle, but for societal change. That is fundamental to Isaiah's passage. It's fundamental to the project of the prophets in general in the Hebrew Bible. And it's fundamental, I believe, for millennia. Though today, I would say, Mark, that there are those who would say, that's not really Judaism. That's this you know, thing that you get to if you have extra time. But it's not part of the DNA in the aorta. I think Isaiah 58 saying, oh, no, it's not optional, it's required, it's essential, and it is part of how we have to build Jewish lives of commitment and uh, passion. Fascinating. You know, it reminds me of, I believe it's Leviticus 25, which is a section of pretty dense labor and contract law. And then all of a sudden, God says, I am Hashem, your God, just to assert. These topics, which you might think are mundane, prosaic, just between a person and a person, I am Hashem, your God. They are deeply consequential to me, lest I remind you. 100%. And I think that's a great example of the details. I mean, a religious life is built on the details. How well can we put into specific practice some of the general the general principles and see them as, no, no, this is how I have to figure out how do I live with my family? How do I raise up my relationships with my coworkers? How is this religious tradition demanding of me a whole set of norms and behaviors and commitments? That's what it means to be a religious person. Well, and to have a relationship with God, I mean, it wouldn't make any sense if God only wanted a relationship on Saturday or Sunday or Friday, whatever religion you are. It's like as parents to a child, when do we want a relationship with our children? All the time. Not only when they want something, yeah, that's part of it, but not only when they want something, it's all encompassing, it's completely comprehensive. Yes, and I would also say, this question is theological. It's exactly that. In uh, we have this very powerful passage in Genesis when Abraham is negotiating with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham, in a moment of unbelievable chutzpah of audacity, says to God, "Will the judge of all the earth not act?" justly. Can you imagine a person having the temerity to say to the creator of the universe? But what it means is God demands justice, and we can also hold God to that same standard. It's critical to the theological foundation of our Jewish tradition, and we have that not just in that passage in Genesis. We have it, as you gave that beautiful example from Leviticus 25, we have it throughout. And I think there are probably four, maybe more, but at least four examples in the Torah when a person argues with God, Abraham at Sodom, Moses at the golden calf, the men at Pesach Shani, they get Pesach Shani when they say, we want to celebrate Pesach even though we're impure, and the daughters of Zalopakot, who say, we want to inherit the land. They argue with God, all four of them, they all win. And they all win big. A couple of times, God gives them more than what they ask. And I think also, in some ways, you could do this with the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. What is the test? Is the test to see if 
you know, Abraham would rise up and say, hey, this is not right. You're asking me to sacrifice my, my only beloved son. I can't do that. What are you asking me? And, you know, God wanting to inculcate into us the ability to be righteously indignant for the sake of justice, not for our own self-aggrandizement. No, no. For the sake of the principles and the commitments, we've got to be willing to take on not only the earthly antagonists, but even at times to challenge the creator of the universe. And it's so interesting re- reading uh, your chosen passage here. Now I see, given that you said we read it on in the morning of Yom Kippur, it makes total sense. Yet on the day of your fasting, Yom Kippur, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Wow. Okay. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. That is quite a statement to people in synagogue who are fasting on Yom Kippur when we read that. Amazing. And you know, it's also this idea that I'm checking the box. I'm in temple. I'm there all day. I'm hungry. I said all the words. I stayed to the very end, to the final shofar blast. And Isaiah is saying, you know what, if that's the checking the box, you've missed the whole point. This is not about checking the box. And I also think there's a piece of this, it's about empathy. Here I am, when this is chanted in uh, synagogue, I know as a pulpit rabbi for many years, this is the time when everybody's stomachs are growling, right? This is in the, in the morning? What time in the morning is this? Well, it depends on which shul you go to, but it could be, you know, mid-morning. So your, your, your stomach's growling and you're focused on fasting, but it's yours. And boy, this is going to be so long. I'm looking at my watch. Yeah, it's about the worst time of the day. Yeah. Oh my God, I've got seven, eight more hours. This is going to be tough. And basically saying, you think it's bad to be hungry for a day, just a few hours? Think about in the passage, God says, I need you to share your bread with the hungry. Can you, can you remember person of religious faith, what it means to be hungry, really hungry, not not fasting for 25 hours. So there's a, a piece of this is also saying, use the experience of this holy day to fuel a greater sensitivity and awareness, not just because you're obligated, but you also understand and feel a kinship with those who are oppressed, those who are hungry, those who are neglected, those who are unfairly and unjustly incarcerated. Those are the things that the experience is supposed to get inside, not only our heads, but our hearts. Right. And I I think it's also a corrective of not a particular Jewish problem, although we have a problem too, but all all religions have it, is religion and superstition. In other words, if I fast, the most crude way we do it as Jews, I fast, then I'll get in the book of life. Totally crude. And Isaiah is saying that is completely not what it's about. In fact, on your day of fasting, Isaiah is saying, I'm going to insult you. You know, I think you might be exploiting your workers. I think you might be quarreling and in strife with people who don't deserve it. What a ch- now, as a pulpit rabbi for so many years, how often at the end of Yom Kippur or in the middle of Yom Kippur have people come up to you and said, Rabbi, oh my God, I just read along with everybody else, Isaiah, that passage, I think it was from Isaiah 58. And whoa, like, I, is he talking to me? Like, how often do people actually read it and allow it to transform them? Or how often do they read it and just go on the day waiting for the glorious moment when the chauffeur sounds and we can eat again? It's a great question, Mark. I I think there's a part of this that just pierces us. It gets in there, whether it's in the, you know, conscious mind or it's just absorbed in. But the truth is we're having a, a real battle right now for what it means to be a person of faith. And there's a whole, I, I don't have to, you know, underscore it, but out in the wider culture, in the media, question is, what does it mean to be religious? And should I bring my religion into the public square? Is that is that fair in America, for example? Or is my religion something personal that I should just take care of and do in my home, in my in my congregation. 
But Isaiah is also saying, I'm not actually the God of uh, home and synagogue. I'm the God of the universe. And anywhere there is injustice or immorality, if the way you treat your workers is a shameful set of behaviors, then frankly, that's what you ought to spend this Day of Atonement thinking about. So it's really expanding. And I'm not suggesting that the passage calls for partisan political activism. I don't believe that for a minute. But what it's saying is if you don't participate in the moral discussions of your society and bring your faith with you to the office when you go to work in the morning, when you go out into the community, then you are missing the magnitude of what it means to be committed to this work. And think of, you know, if I could just use the example of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who is truly one of the most inspirational figures we have in modern Jewish life, scholar of Jewish mysticism, uh, he wrote his uh, PhD thesis on the prophets, but he marched in 1965 with Dr. King and Selma. And when they were commemorating the 50th anniversary, there was a whole discussion that King and Heschel were just there as a political protest. And Heschel was really clear. I was there praying. It was as if my feet were praying, my legs were praying. And for him, you know, he he didn't stop praying three times a day. He didn't stop deeply studying Jewish texts, but he wanted to demonstrate that that's where his faith called him. So it wasn't a political protest. It was a religious expression of his commitment. And I think that piece of our Jewish tradition is something we want to reclaim. And I think the authenticity of Rabbi Heschel was he didn't sacrifice ritual. He never sacrificed his study. He made it an integrated whole that's so compelling, particularly for young people today, to say, you know what? I, you know, I may just think I'm going to be a social activist. What's going to fuel that? What's going to undergird your daily commitment to get out there and do that work? You're going to need a place to regenerate that kind of commitment. And I think Heschel is one of those great examples. My predecessor, Rabbi Maurice Eisendrath, marched with Heschel and Dr. King. He carried a Torah scroll. Rabbi Maurice Eisendrath carried this huge Torah scroll when they marched. It was so heavy, I couldn't imagine how he could do it. But he wanted to say the Torah isn't just for our sanctuary and for our ritual moments. It's a beacon of light in the world. And that's why I want to carry it out in these protests to make a commitment. This is God's demand of me. This is the prophetic imperative for our society. Well, I, and I love your use of the word integrated because that's what it means to have integrity. That's what Dr. King and Abraham Joshua Heschel and your predecessor were. That, that's what integrity means is that every part of you, everything you do is devoted to God. There's nothing that's not. It's, it's all contribute to the glory of God. And Martin Luther King as well. So he gave one of his first big sermons at the uh, St. John the Divines, and it was called The Death of Evil on the Sands of the Seashore. And right underneath the title, it said Exodus 1430 with the quote. It was a midrash on Exodus 1430. He was living and enacting the Exodus story in his time, quite consciously. And he preached it over and over again, Mark. It was not just something he did powerfully one or two times. If you look at his sermons and read, he has such an affinity for the Exodus narrative and sees the overlay in the struggle he's leading and you know, sees his work as fundamentally a answering of God's call, saying Hineni, which of course is in the end of uh, one of the pieces of this text where it says, what will happen when you fast from injustice, when you see the naked and clothe them, when you're not uh, complicit with uh, injustice? This is verse eight. Then shall your light burst through like the dawn, 
and your healing spring up quickly. Your vindicators shall march before you. The presence of the eternal shall be your rear guard. Then when you call, God will answer. When you cry, God will say, Hineni, here I am. It's about having a deep relationship to God. Sometimes we cry out, we say, is God listening? The text is saying, do these things, do them with sincerity, with really significant uh, ongoing commitment. Then light will dawn for you. And when you cry out, God will answer. Magnificent. Now, moving away from this remarkable text, which is all the so much richer now that we know that it's what we read on Yom Kippur, and it's really a rebuke to the wrong kind of fasting. Moving to history for a moment, do we think this text was placed in the Yom Kippur liturgy in response to a mode of behavior at the time that this was offered a corrective to? Like, when would the Yom Kippur liturgy have been uh, inaugurated? So you have layers of the biblical history. It's a great scholarly question. Uh, and, and before you get to rabbinical school, which I have a feeling may be in the future, I just, just tell me I'm crazy, but I just think you may have that in your future. I'm just the rabbi's husband. That's a significant role in and of itself. But you have the overlay of Isaiah going back, you know, 2,500 years. And, you know, it's definitely a rebuke. Why was the temple destroyed? Why was there a Babylonian exile? Because of the immorality of the people. The people were not living the tradition. And they would come to the ancient temple and, um, you know, have the sacrifices offered and feel like, okay, I did my thing and then go back and live a very unethical life. So that's one piece. Now, when the Talmud, you know, pretty much about 2,000 years ago, maybe a little less, says this is the reading for Yom Kippur morning, they have the overlay of looking at their society, you know, in the rabbinic period. And they thought this was a great a uh, model of turning people from wrongdoing to doing right. So this was a tshuva text. It was about turning. So that was their motivation. But it's in the biblical text in the original setting, but it's also in the overlay. And then it's in every generation since has read that text. For thousands of years. Incredible. Now, as a Reform rabbi and now as the leader of Reform rabbis and congregations in the Reform movement through the URJ, if one of the issues we have as Reformed Jews is people come to synagogue twice a year. A lot of people. Now, if someone came to you and said, I'm only going to come twice a year. You can't convince me to come more, at least for now. I'm only going to come twice a year. I'm only going to do two Jewish things a year, two Jewish holidays a year. What should they be? I'd much rather have people do something that's going to be in a regularity, if you think about it. I mean, making a Shabbat every seven days having that oasis in some ways will have a bigger impact on someone's life than an incredible 25-hour experience, you know, once a year. But I also think, here's, here's what I do think, not only do we see more people coming on the high holidays because of the themes and the tie that we have to them, but I do think that one of the things that we need to pay attention to is when the Pew study in 2013 asked Jews, what are you most committed to in your Jewish life? Ethics, doing justice, way above ritual behavior, way above. And that, that, I think, is not to say that's the ideal, but most people identify very closely with the ethical precepts of Judaism. And many of us, you know, we struggle to show that there's an interconnection, right? When I observe Pesach for the whole week, I'm not eating matzah because I love matzah, although some people do like it. I, I don't. I'm doing the ritual 
to refine who I am, to make me live a more responsive, a more ethically alive life. So I think, you know, for people who want to do more, I want them to take on something and really do it. I, I don't want just to find something that, you know, okay, I, I could sort of do that. A little, I give a little tzedakah, I'll give a little bit more. What are the things that really call upon each of us to really think about how does this really anchor my life? What really is at stake with that? So find one thing and really do it. Correct. By the way, Maimonides had a similar idea, you know, way before I had the idea. But the truth is, wherever you start, start deep. And I think what we know is a lot of people start with social justice. And in Judaism, if someone says, I want to start, you say, start observing a holiday, start with Shabbat. I want to start being Jewish, read the Torah every week. Those are obvious. Everybody would say that. Nobody would say, start by doing an act of social conscience, social justice, and build backwards. But the Pew study says that's where most Jews are. I say, why would we not want to build on what they feel connected to and undergird it with a really rich, demanding, inspirational Jewish tradition, which is what the ritual and the study of the text can do? Well, because if you don't have something that's expressly Jewish, and I love your two, uh, Shabbat, Pesach, what's the difference between doing social justice as a Jew and doing it as a Unitarian? The answer is, you know, and the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts do uh, community service. But for the Jewish tradition, social justice isn't community service. And when it's when it's popular as it is now, great. But for the longest time, it wasn't popular. It wasn't extra credit to apply to college. So the Jewish tradition says it's integral to what it means to be a person of faith, what God demands of us, how we are to live a life of meaning and purpose. That's what this is about. And honestly, those other expressions don't have an underpinning. That's right. And as you talk through it, and as I learned from you now, it, I, would, I was going to come in, if you asked me, I would have said it would be Shabbat and Pesach, but now I'm going to say Shabbat and Pesach, but each should have a social justice accompaniment. So it's not just a ritual, kind of like you talked about in Isaiah, but nor is it just social justice, because I believe that, risk, that risks not being Jewish. But if you combine Shabbat with social justice, Pesach with social justice, and it's what the Kuska Rebbe said when he was, his students would say, uh, or he would say to his students, how far is it from east to west? And they would say, well, Jerusalem is this many miles. And he would say, no, 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 it's one step. That's beautiful. Take one step, and then you want to do another. Beautiful teaching. And I think for us, we want to see the richness of this tradition. And Pesach does have its social justice components. So does Purim. Every one of our uh, traditional observances, and not to put that on a second tier, like it's a lower tier. Here's the main thing. The main thing is going to synagogue on the high holidays. By the way, I think it's a wonderful thing. I am enriched by my synagogue participation, but it's not like I put the rest on lower tiers. How can I also raise up those things and see it as integrated to the very core of what I do and what I feel is essential in Jewish life? Now, getting back to um, how I introduced you, it was a, a close friend of mine who's an Orthodox rabbi. He told me, I don't remember when, a year ago, a month ago, he said, uh, you know, Rick Jacobs comes to my synagogue. And he was moved by the fact that you, as the leader of the reform movement, worship in synagogues of all denominations. So tell us why. Well, first of all, I'll just start with the rabbi who most inspired me to be a rabbi was Rabbi David Hartman of Blessed Memory. Rabbi David Hartman was a uh, a musmach, an ordained rabbi from Rabbi Soloveitchik, ordained at Yeshiva University, founded the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. I studied with him when I was an undergraduate at Hebrew University, and he turned on the lights of what a serious study of Judaism would be. And, um, you know, till his dying day, he, he had a very strong mentorship of me. 
And what I love also is I'm comfortable in Jewish life. Uh, I may disagree, people may disagree with me, but I'm part of the Jewish people. I love that. I love, you know, all of the richness and all of the diversity of our tradition and our texts. And I think that gives us unbelievable strength. And so I want I want all of our movement. We're the largest movement in North America. We're larger than the Orthodox, conservative, and reconstructist movements combined. But that's not an end. That's just a description of some demographic reality. I want us to be part and parcel of a global Jewish people that stands for something, that is mutually supportive of one another, even when we disagree. That's when it really matters, not when we all agree. Especially when we disagree. Especially, and to stand up and with love feel that sense of connective tissue, particularly around the many different things that divide us today. That's right. I've always thought it'd be a useful exercise, perhaps at the Pesach Seder, because in the Pesach Seder, we're going to be in a predominantly or exclusively reformed Seder or Orthodox Seder, because that's the nature of families and communities, and it's fine. But wouldn't it be great if at the Pesach Seder, reformed Jews said, all right, let's find three things about the Orthodox that we should adopt to improve us. And the Orthodox said, let's find three things about the reform that we can learn from them. I mean, that, that would be, I think, a valuable exercise for everybody. Because it's got to be, and if you can't come up with three things, if you can't come up with the three things, that's a problem too. So my chavruta, my study partner in uh, Scarsdale, when I was the rabbi at Westchester Reform Temple, Rabbi Jacob Rubenstein of Young Israel of Scarsdale. So he invites me to speak at his synagogue in Shabbat morning. And I say, Jake, that's fine. I'm happy to come. What's the drill? Are you going to set me up and I'm going to be the object of everyone's uh, ridicule? And uh, he goes, no, no, no. I thought what we'd do is I'd speak about what I love about Reform Judaism and you'll speak about what you love about Orthodox Judaism. But I, then I said to myself, this was small-minded of me. I need to outgrow this. I said, well, I have a lot to say. Jake, will you have anything to say? He said, I'll go first. He gets up there 20 minutes. He's talking about the reform movement. I'm in tears. It's so beautiful. It's so honest. And it's so real. And I said, what he did for his community was a Kiddush Hashem. It was a real sanctification of God's name. Now, I met some reformed Jews who afterwards said, you went to young Israel of Scarsdale? You know, they're Orthodox. You know that men and women don't sit together. I said, I know all that. Rabbi Rubenstein came to my uh, son's bar mitzvah at Westchester. He had never been in a synagogue where men and women sat together. And Rabbi Angela Bookdahl was uh, acting as cantor for that service. He had never heard a woman chant the prayers. But he went, and when he went back to his synagogue, people said, why did you go to Westchester Reformed Temple? You know, they're not Orthodox. He said, my friend's son was having a bar mitzvah. How could I not go? This is a Jewish world we can create. We can be those exemplars, but we got to stretch ourselves. It's not going to happen automatically. It's going to take real work, but look what the fruits of that work could be. Absolutely beautiful. Now, the uh, concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, a sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is um, Andre Melrose's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says in the book, I just ran to a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Rick, in all of your years of being a congregational rabbi and being a rabbinic leader, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Well, it's two among you know thousands of things. What I've learned about humankind is when you scratch down and you dig down, that there's this commonality. You can call it by different names in the Jewish tradition. Some people call it, you know, the Tselem Elohim, the, the image of God. 
there is within each of us a common bond to uh, the people who are most different. I was in a refugee camp in Chad during the Darfur genocide, and a three-year-old boy took my hand as I walked through and wouldn't let go. We walked through for literally three hours. This, this young boy, I didn't know his name. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak Arabic. He held my hand. We're getting ready to leave. This was a, an international uh, you know, uh, mission. And I said to the head of the, the camp, I said, maybe he should come home with me. Uh, we have room. We have a house in, in the suburbs. I said, I can't let go of this young boy. He said, Rabbi, don't, don't take him home. Go home and fight for all of the children here. Fight for all the children all over. And Mark, I know this is work you do so brilliantly and effectively. So for me, in those moments, I have felt absolutely at one uh, with, with people who I don't have a common language, but I am part of their family. I am part of their circle of connection and commitment. And when we connect those dots, not just to Jewish people around the world, but to God's children all throughout the world, we imagine in those moments a world that is the reflection of God's vision, of a world of justice, compassion, and wholeness. And to me, that's what every day has. Yes, there are moments where you want to scream. There are moments where you're covered with abrasions from trying to navigate this very complex world. But over and over again, I come back to that deep commonality. And when we strip away the things that divide us and sometimes do it in a very a hurtful and painful way, we find a bedrock upon which we could build a world of hope and possibility. Magnificent. Well, Rick, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation where I learned something. Thank you for teaching me today. I mean, uh, so much about the passage, Isaiah 58, one through eight, but what it teaches us not only in the passage, but what it teaches us by when we read it and basically how it should inform how we confront Yom Kippur of all days. Incredible. Thank you for the opportunity. And I learned as well. It was really a treat. Thank you. Well, thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.